chatting with someone about how easy it can be for us to have um, gaps in our knowledge as Christians. And I'm sure almost everybody in this room will have had a conversation that goes somewhat along the lines of, you know in the Bible where Ahab and the music stand is all over the place. <laughs> no, no, it's all right. Thank you very much. We'll be, we'll be fine. Um, I'm imagining all of us have had a conversation with somebody where they said something like, oh, yeah, you know in the Bible where, where Ahab tries to take that vineyard off Naboth, and, yeah, that Ahab's a real piece of work, isn't he? And internally, you're like, nope. I think this might be the first time I've ever heard the names Ahab and Naboth. I have no idea what vineyard you are talking about or where in the Bible this might possibly be. Of course, then, externally, you're like, oh, yeah, 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 totally, absolutely, yeah, 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 that Ahab, poor, and that vineyard. I think it might be my favorite vineyard in the whole of Scripture. It can be very easy, can't it, to have gaps, big or small, in our knowledge of Scripture. And uh, that was very much, until the last five or six years ago, my experience of the crucifixion of Jesus. That it's not so much that I didn't understand the cross at all, in fact, I thought I knew the cross quite well. I had heard a lot about it. I'd heard a lot of teaching about it. It was a big focus of the teaching that I'd heard. But actually, on reflection, my, the teaching that I'd heard on the crucifixion pretty much always boiled down to, I guess, a very one-dimensional understanding of what the cross meant. That essentially Jesus died for my sins so that I could have a relationship with God. Which, of course, is wonderfully and beautifully true. But it's only more recently that I've realized, actually, it is far more multi-dimensioned and beautiful and deep, the cross, than I had really realized. And you might be able to relate to my experience. Maybe even now, as, as I'm talking, you're thinking, well, actually, yeah, maybe I don't have quite so a very full picture of, of what the cross really means and, and what it accomplished. Or maybe if someone were to ask you, what does the cross, what, what happened at the cross, you might say something along the lines of, oh, it was, it was Jesus showing us how much he loves us. But you maybe wouldn't be able to express much more than that. Or maybe you're here and you're like, I don't know anything about the cross at all. I've heard of it, but I really don't know. And in many ways, I think that is the beauty of the cross, uh, sorry, the beauty of our faith, is that we actually, we don't need to know that much at all, that we don't have to have a huge intellectual understanding of the cross in order to have real, genuine faith, that if we understand just a little bit, if we, we can truly know Jesus, we can truly be his disciples, we can truly grow in him and be mature disciples, but at the same time, the cross is the center point of our faith. It's the event that, as believers, our lives revolve around, that the whole of history revolves around. As Jem said, it is the single most significant moment that has ever happened. I think it's good for us to delve into it, to get as much understanding of it as we can. And so over the next five Sundays, as we head towards Easter Sunday, we are going to be taking a deep dive into exploring some of the meaning of the cross. What does it actually mean? We'll look at a bit of an introduction today, and then over the next four Sundays, we'll, um, we'll have a look at some individual themes and threads and perspectives, I guess, on the cross. Because I think one of the best ways for us to understand the cross 
is almost like a series of beautiful images that none of which individually contain and do justice to the whole of what the cross means. None of them individually explain everything, but almost like together as you grasp each one and as you see one, as you understand all of the different threads, it kind of makes the whole tapestry more beautiful. It helps us understand the great drama of our salvation. And I hate to disappoint you, but after five weeks, we will still not fully understand the cross. That you are not going to graduate after five weeks with a kind of cross expert certificate. Although that would be quite a lot of fun, wouldn't it? We're not going to do that. We are just going to be scratching the surface of what has happened in this most significant of events. But my hope is that as we do, even just scratch the surface, our understanding of what Christ has accomplished will go deeper. And it will lead to a richer understanding of him and what he has done that will strengthen our faith. And what I really hope is that it will then overflow into worship for us. That if you like, it, this is kind of the only real application point that I want from this sermon, sermon series over these next five weeks is that we would just see the beauty and the wonder of the cross all the more, that it would just fuel our worship, would have even more than 10,000 reasons to thank God for, because the cross just comes alive for us. So far, you might be with me. You might be thinking, I am up for this, Duncan. Let's go. Let's go for it. I'm kind of hoping that's, yeah, yeah, there's a few nods. But in order for us to see the beauty of the cross, we do first, I think, need to see some of the horror of the cross. The cross is, is pretty hard-hitting. It's raw. It's quite visceral. It's graphic. There's something about the cross that will make all of us, as we see it truly, even the most mature believers amongst us, want to turn away from it. And today, that's where we're going to start in our series. That we're going to see what makes the cross actually uniquely evil. What it is that repels us from the cross. But that is actually the paradox of the cross. That it's through coming and seeing it in its horror and in its, almost its offensiveness to us that we then meet Jesus in all of his power and his beauty. So if you're a note taker, um, then I'm calling today's message The Godless Place. And we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1 from verse 17. So if, you do got, if you've got a Bible, then um, do turn. But we'll also have the words on the screen there so you can read along. So Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Verse 17, chapter 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, 
and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The church that Paul's writing to here, the church in Corinth, it seems to be doing, at this point, pretty well. By so many measures that we would choose, or metrics that we would have perhaps to measure, is a church successful or not, this church in Corinth is actually probably doing pretty well. It's probably, from what we know, absolutely flying. The church car park would always be full. They'd be having loads of new people through the door, explosive growth. They'd have so many connect forms being filled in. They'd be adding services, afternoon, evening services, left, right, and center. The coffee that they're serving is probably single origin and roasted on site. I can only imagine the snacks that they were serving up post-meeting. I, I think I have in mind this sort of like tiny little burgers that they serve at fancy events. I don't know. That's maybe something for us to aim towards. We would not be spending our offering money on those. Testimonies of how God had been working and moving in people's lives would have abounded of God's provision and of breakthrough that people had experienced. From what we know, there were signs and wonders going off in this church all over the place. They'd maybe even, we don't know, had an offering where God had come through spectacularly and provided for them more than they could ever have expected. But as Paul writes to them, he's not patting them on the back, saying, congratulations, you are the model church, you're doing so well, just keep going and doing what you're doing. Paul seems concerned. He seems concerned because in the midst of their encouragement and their excitement and all that's going right, he seems to be picking up that the center point of their faith is not quite where it should be. Verse 22 and 23 again. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. It's almost like Paul here is having to defend the idea of the cross to the church. He's almost having to remind them, no, no, you preach Christ crucified. This is the message that we have. We see it again in, verse, uh, in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's almost like he's having to convince them, hey, church, your faith is based on the cross, the Jews didn't want to hear it. It was a stumbling block. The Gentiles among them didn't want to hear them. It was folly and foolishness. Nobody wanted to know. It's almost like this church has moved on from the cross. It's almost like they have all of these other things happening now amongst them. They've got signs and wonders going off. They've got ecstatic experience. They've got full auditoriums. They're moving in spiritual gifts. All of these things going on. They're seeing healings bursting out amongst them. It's almost like we kind of moved on from the cross. We don't need the cross anymore. This is where the real action is. This is what the power looks like. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Don't move on from the cross. Never move on from the cross. Keep preaching it. Keep celebrating it. Because the aversion of the Corinthians, I think, is understandable. Paul even completely accepts and acknowledges why that they don't want to focus on the cross. He says it's foolishness, it's, it's folly, it's a stumbling block, it's weakness. He's essentially acknowledging, I know this is not where you want to look. This is not exciting for you because the cross, amidst all of your kind of victory, success, power that you're seeing, the cross is a place of defeat. 
it's a reminder that our God entered into creation and then as his crowning moment, the most significant moment of his life was his death. That our God came and our God was overcome, he was defeated, and he was murdered by people. Our God came, our God died. But Paul doesn't simply want to remind them of the death of Jesus. Here, and actually in pretty much all of Paul's writing um, and in the rest of the New Testament, it's quite rare that you would read simply that Jesus died. Almost always it comes with more detail, as we'll see on these slides that come up now. Verse 23 again. But we preach Christ crucified. And then from the the verse in chapter 2 that I read, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Then Paul later in Galatians chapter 6, far be it from me to glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, Philippians 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is, he's relentless and he's consistent and he is crystal clear that what makes us want to look away from Jesus' death is not just that Jesus died, but that he died on a cross. The fact of Jesus' death and that he died is not the whole story. But the method of Jesus' death is significant in the gospel that Paul preached, significant to scripture. It's this detail that Jesus was crucified that makes it hard for us to look at. So why was the crucifixion so, is so hard for us? Is it simply because it, of how gruesome it is? The physical suffering that Jesus had to endure. Certainly that has been a big part of a lot of the teaching that I've heard around it. And th- there's been an emphasis on just how gruesome the, the death of Jesus is. That the Roman Empire had devised this most brutal form of murder that was used uh, as a regular method of execution among its victims, purpose designed to inflict maximum pain and suffering over a prolonged period of time before the agony leads to death. And as hard as it is for us to hear, I do think it is helpful for us to understand something of what this process would have been like for Jesus. That as Jesus was led out for his execution, the first thing they would have done would have been to strip him of his clothing to expose his bare back so that they could have used a a whip made out of many cords with glass and nails attached to it. And they would have used this whip to repeatedly lash at his back, to tear away the skin and then later the muscle and the other soft tissue that it exposes, to repeatedly lash to tear it up as much as they as they could and it was only after this process that then he was led up a hill and thrown onto his back to expose it to mud and to dirt and at that point they would then lay the crossbar down and they would use big nails and nail the wrists of those that they're crucifying to this crossbar or through the hands perhaps but most likely through the wrists And then they would hang this crossbar with 
Jesus on it, onto an upright post that was already held in the ground. And there, his, as he hung, the crucifixion would begin. And the agony, the torture of this slow death, was then that for every breath that Jesus wanted to take, it would be intense agony for him. The natural position that you're in compresses your lungs. So it means that you have to either push yourself up on the feet that have been nailed to the upright post, or you have to use your wrists to pull up and hurriedly try and snatch at some breath as you make space in your lungs. And all as that is going on, your torn and raw back is being dragged up against the upright post. And that's just one breath. And that process would go on for hours, maybe even days, before your body gave up, maybe organ failure, or suffocated by your diaphragm. I'm sure you, like me, find it hard to think about that. That is not pleasant for us to hear. The, the image of a man, any man, dying in that way is just something naturally that we do not want to hear. We don't, none of us came to church this morning thinking, oh, I really hope that Duncan goes into a lot of detail about that. It's just not nice. It's not something we want to think about. It's not something we want to linger on. But while I, I think it's helpful for us to understand, I think it's helpful for us to be in the picture, to, to see, if you like, something that the disciples and the other onlookers would have seen, to know what it was like in some detail. Actually, the true horror of the crucifixion was not actually found in the physical pain and the torment that they suffered. The evil of crucifixion in particular was more in the humiliation and the degradation of its subject. The Christian cross is iconic the world over, isn't it? You see everywhere you go, you will see it on churches, on Bibles, on road signs, on graffiti, street graffiti, jewelry, to represent our faith. I would wager that the Christian cross is the most recognizable symbol in the whole world. I think there's a chance it's even more recognizable than the Apple logo. It's a symbol that represents love and peace and faith. The cross, that is, not the Apple logo. <laughs> Siri does not really love you. It's a symbol of our faith, a symbol of the faith that more than any other faith emphasizes the dignity and the value and the worth of every individual that we are made in the image of God. So we have intrinsic worth and value. And yet the irony of the cross was that its original purpose was to do the very opposite. Paul in Romans chapter 1 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now why does Paul say that? Why does he go out of his way to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Imagine if you were walking down the street with your best friend, and they turned to you and said, do you know what? I'm not actually ashamed to be with you. You wouldn't think, that is a very nice thing for you to say. Thank you so much for the compliment. You would think, you're saying that because you think that I am shameful. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. He is saying, he's pointing it out because he's saying, 
the gospel, the cross, is something that is deeply shameful. That the, cruel, the cross was not just a tool of brutal execution, but was a tool designed to inflict and cause maximum shame and disgrace to anyone that was associated with it. Particularly, of course, its victims. This was a public execution. It was done on a crossroads or along a main road so that there would be maximum exposure that as many people as possible could see the people that are hung on the cross, left naked and alone in their death. It was purposefully designed specifically so that people could be ridiculed and mocked and jeered at. It was designed, it was encouraged that they would, people would be told, make sure you jeer at those that are hang hanging on the cross. This was designed as a public spectacle, not so much as a this is what might happen to you if you step out of line, to try and strike fear into the hearts of the citizens. This was a public spectacle, much more as an, the empire's public pronouncement that these people that are hanging on the cross, these are the ones that do not deserve to live. The crucifixion was designed to be the last word in humiliation and dehumanizing of those victims. The writer and the filmmaker Susan Sontag, um, who was uh, a, a cancer sufferer and spoke a lot about her cancer as she was suffering from it before she um, finally passed away from it. On speaking about that, she said, it's not so much suffering that is feared, so much as suffering that degrades. And that's exactly what the cross was. It was suffering that was designed to degrade to strip you of all of your dignity and all of your worth, to communicate just one message. These people, they're not the same species as the rest of us. They are less than human. Mock them, jeer them, because these are non-people. And with this in mind, I appreciate this is pretty heavy, hard stuff. This is your first Sunday at Rev. It's great to have you. <laughs> Please, you're here. We normally go for a bit of a varied tone, but just for this first first message in the series, I think it's helpful for us to just dwell in the, the difficult place almost for a bit. With all of this in mind, we can understand a little bit of what it is that the four gospel writers are focusing on in, in their attention of Jesus' day of death. I don't know if you've ever noticed, it's kind of remarkable, almost no attention is given in the gospels to the physical pain that Jesus went through. That all of the stuff that I just said, you would not pick any of that up from just reading the gospels. But yet all four Gospels have much to say about the shame and the humiliation that was inflicted upon Jesus. From the mocking of Jesus by the guards, the verbal and physical abuse that he suffered, the ironic dressing of him in royal robes and garments, the sarcastic, here is the king of the Jews placard that was put up, passers-by scoffing and shaking their heads. And in Matthew's Gospel, even the two criminals that were hung either side of Jesus also crucified, mocked and derided him. A message of even among those who were considered less than human, he was lesser. Even among the worthless, this one was worth even less. And to underline that this really is the place where all of Christ's dignity and value and honor had been stripped away from him 
comes his own cry from the cross. The only words that are recorded by more than one gospel. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken by men and then forsaken by God. Quite literally dying a God-forsaken death. This way of dying had already been described as a uniquely dark way of dying. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, the original law of God, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. This is the only form of death that had been said to be cursed. The only form of death that is said to be forsaken by God. This is what Fleming Rutledge in her book, The Crucifixion, calls the godlessness of the cross. This is the one place where God is not hanging on a tree and dying. And it's the one place where Jesus died. If there is one place where Jesus should not be, if there is one position that is not fitting of this man, one situation in quite literally the whole of created history that is the place that he should not be. It's put to death by hanging on a tree. And yet there he hung, Jesus Christ, God the Son, emptied of all that he is, by his very nature as God. He is glory. He is worthy. And he exists so then to be honored, to be valued, to be held as worthy, for all to bow down before him. And here he is, rejected and scorned by men, alone, humiliated, degraded, dehumanized, pronounced worthless and a non-person and under the curse of God hanging in the most godless place on earth. As I said, this is pretty heavy going. <laughs> but if we allow ourselves to see the godlessness of the cross, to see it in all of its wretchedness, then we also get to see this is the path that he chose to walk for us. This is what our Jesus took upon himself. This is where he chose to go to save us. That for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, as we read in Hebrews. He knew the shame. He knew the humiliation. He knew that he was walking into a God-forsaken moment. He knew the cost. But for us, for his joy, he went there. Over the weeks of this series, we will see exactly why he went there. We'll see exactly what was accomplished. But for now, I think it's enough for us to know that he did. That he went there. Because of us, he died. And because of us, he died this death. As we see the cross, we see 
the most horrific thing. We see perhaps the greatest representation of evil. But also, we see him. We meet our Savior and our God. This is the great paradox of the cross that the Corinthians struggle with, that we struggle with, that when we consider the cross in, in all of its wretchedness, all of its evil, that we want to look away, we want to, Dungan, to stop his description of it, or we want to, like, to stop thinking about how dark and desperate it is, and we think there cannot be anything good here, surely. But as we choose to look, as we choose to consider the reality of it, and we linger there, it is right there that we come face to face with our Lord. Right there that we see him, our saviour and our God. It's in the horror that we also find the beauty. And it's in its weakness that we also find power. Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthians, says that to the cross for anybody... Jew or Greek, it is, it's foolishness, it's folly, it's a stumbling block, it's, it's weakness. But it's in the weakness, it is also the power of God. Verse 17 again from our text. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then verse 18, immediately afterwards, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then uh, again, verse 23 and 24, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then uh, again, a couple of verses from chapter 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then jumping down to verse 5. So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Four times there, Paul says that power is found in Christ. But notice again, he's really clear. He's not just saying that it is found in Christ. He's saying it's found in Christ crucified or in the cross of Jesus Christ. That is where we find the power of God. Again, Fleming Rutledge puts it like this. Christians do not simply look to the cross of Christ with prayerful reverence. We are set in motion by its power, energized by it, upheld by it, guaranteed by it, secured by it for the promised future because it is the power of God that gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The power of cross of the cross is a life-giving power that stands by itself all on its own. That as hard as it can be, hear, it be for us to hear about it and reflect upon it and to think about it, it on its own is power. I think if often we think about in the Christian life, when we think, I need a bit of power for Christian living, we might think about the resurrection. We might think about, okay, I need maybe a, a new spiritual gift, or I need to have an encounter with God through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Those are obviously great things to be hungering after. But do we also think of the cross as power? 
as a source of power for us in our discipleship. Over the next four Sundays, we are going to simply make space and time for the power of the cross to be seen, to stand alone, and to be at work amongst us. As we explore different themes of the cross, we're going to see it as a place of freedom, as a place of sacrifice, of substitution, of atonement, of victory, of enthronement, even as a place of glory. But as we explore it, this is not simply for us to grow in our knowledge or to fill up notebooks, um, although if you're taking notes, go wild. But as we see the cross, this is also for us to encounter God in his power. Paul is clear with the Corinthians. He has quite literally no other power to offer them. In both of his letters to the Corinthians, he basically is just like saying, I have nothing except for this message. He acknowledges he lacks the persuasive and performative razzle-dazzle of excellent and exceptional communicators of the age. He doesn't have the bright, white, shining teeth of manicured celebrity that the Corinthians were after. He doesn't have the charisma and the personality that would draw in the masses and fill up car parks. But the power that he did have was the power of the cross of a crucified saviour. A cross of torture and humiliation, forsaken and cursed, the most godless of places. Yet somehow, the greatest paradox, the place where we meet God, see his beauty and experience his power. That's what our next four weeks are going to be. A power that has never stopped shaking humanity since. A power that we can know today and a power that we're going to see over this teaching series. Can I have the band, please? We are going to finish our time today by doing what I think feels like the only appropriate response and share communion together. That as we share communion, this meal...